Alright, this morning is November 12th. It is Sunday morning, the year is 2006. I got a different message during worship than I had planned to share, so uh, y'all bear with me with that. But the message this morning is called, Sit and Soak. You got me? Sit and Soak. You know when you put clothes on a laundry machine, they have this stage where they just kind of sit and then agitation begins and the thing drains and spins and all of that stuff. I'm convinced that there's a problem in Christianity. We have learned to come in, sit on pews, or in this case folding chairs, and sit and just soak as if that is our purpose. Our purpose is somehow just to be infused with teaching constantly, to be infused with good singing and worship and all those things constantly, as if that were your purpose. No football team, no athletic team, no army exists to train. How ridiculous would that be? In fact, the only people that are happy when a war breaks out are the Air Force pilots. And they're happy because they have trained for years and years and years and they finally get to put something into practice. That sounds harsh, but it's not harsh if you've trained for years and years and years. I mean, you want to see whether or not... Well, Christians, sometimes we're just sitting in here and soaking, and I don't want that. Last week, we covered a a parable that was traditionally called the parable of the prodigal, right? I explained all the reasons that that's the wrong influence, and I went through the whole thing about how Greek influence ruined our thoughts on that. That the right emphasis is placed on the father, the gracious father, who had two sons, a man who had two sons. It was not about one who was wayward, it was about two who were wayward in very different ways. And then I asked you at the end of the message what the older brother did. Because we know that the younger one who sinned horribly came back, experienced the love of the Father, experienced revelation and was restored. We never find out what the older brother did. And I asked you, I said, you're the older brother, the one who has sat in church, who has treated your relationship with God like an employer and an employee who has dishonored the Father in so many ways, not necessarily by overt sin, but by your attitude. And said, what will you do about it? If you left that message Sunday and now have arrived here to soak up another message on Sunday, and you didn't think about that during the week, and it didn't affect your actions in some way, then we are failing. I'm failing. God's Word in you is failing. We're failing if that's the case. I don't want to fail. The Bible speaks about God's Word as leaven, bringing change, working through the whole system. Last week, had anybody in here, and it's okay if you have, you can tell me the truth, had you heard the revelation on that parable before? No, it was new, wasn't it? I'd never heard it before. It was something that I got from studying that was encouraging to me. Don't you feel good to receive special revelation? Isn't it nice to have God give you something that you can't just buy on a shelf? But why do you think He did it? Does He give us those things just so that we'll sit and soak it up and be blessed? I mean, is church, is that really what church is? A Santa Claus ceremony. Lord, give me, give me. My name is Jimmy. You know? We all sit around in a circle, hold hands, and just feel blessed. Why does God bless? Why? Why does He give you what He gives you? He wants something out of you. He puts something on deposit with you. He entrusted you with something. As that began to circulate in my mind this morning during worship, I decided to change the order of our service. I'm going to give you a couple more today that you may not have heard. I'm going to give you because it's been given to me. But I want to ask you something. If you don't find a way to do something with this, don't we insult the grace that God's lavishing upon us? Yeah, I think that's a rhetorical question. But... It's worth contemplating, meditating on a little bit. I don't want to beat you down. I'm excited. God has given... When I look back over the last few weeks, I think, wow, Lord, you don't know how many things I've taught in the last two months that I didn't know a couple weeks before I taught them. That's a rare thing. Pastors are usually pulling stale bread out of a filing cabinet. You know? They're usually preaching the same old garbage and recycling it. God is giving us, but that means much is required of us. And I want to take that attitude. I want you to be bold. I want you to be tenacious. I want you to have the courage in the mall to walk up to the person that you feel the tingling in your heart about 
and share with them something. You know, when you pass somebody on the highway and you thought, maybe I should have stopped and helped them. I want you to think about the teaching and stop and help them. I want to be a church of doers. Does that make sense? You all with me? Or am I standing up here alone, whistling into the wind? I want to make a change in our lives. We name this life-changing ministries because I was tired of stale. I was tired of stagnant. I've already done dead. It is no fun. I want to walk in the newness of resurrection life. Are you all with me in that regard? Amen. That's what I want. Turn with Matthew 20. I'm going to reemphasize another parable, something that we learned last week. In Matthew 20, we have a parable. Tell me what it says for you. Uh, Parable of the workers in the vineyard. Y'all there? In this parable of the workers in the vineyard, as the NIV titled it, it is so easy to read this as a story. You know, Jesus is telling a parable and we think of parables as stories. But I want you to get something here. The reason when I taught you last week, Jesus says, now suppose one of you has a coin and has lost it. Suppose one of you has a sheep and has lost it. These parables were not given to people as simply a story to contemplate. They were meant to draw you into it for you to put yourself in the position of the players in the parable, of the characters in the story, so that you feel what they feel, so that you have to make a choice like the choices they make. The reason in the story of the prodigal, the son, the first one, repents and comes back is a no-brainer. Nobody there was questioning whether or not he needed to do that. But the reason the ending is left opening on the other one is because we're all in that boat. In what ways have we dishonored God that are less obvious and need to make a decision? And Jesus left it open so that you would make a decision. Well, this parable is no different. Let's not read this as if it were happening in a galaxy a long ways away. Let's read this as if you were the present day audience. Can we agree that Matthew was written to an audience? Matthew was not just written to the generations in the future so that in 2006, Judah Benjamin Stevens would pick it up and read it. Matthew was not writing to Judah alone. In fact, he may not have had Judah in mind at all. He was writing to a present day audience. Now, Jesus speaking... Jesus knew that His words would be recorded, that they were life, that they would carry on through the generations. But first and foremost, He was speaking to an audience in His day that had certain thoughts and conceptions. And when we read over these, when we skip past them, sometimes we miss the message. Later in this message, I'm going to teach you something about wineskins. That just like the so-called parable of the prodigal that really should be called a man with two sons, we've gotten wrong. And we've gotten wrong because we don't understand the culture. Because we failed to put ourselves in the shoes of the hearer. So this morning, put yourselves in the shoes of the hearer. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. What is that in English? When you hear the word like. Do what? Or similar. Like or similar. What, is the, what literary device is that introducing? Simile or a metaphor, right? This is going to be a story to illustrate a point. The characters in the story represent things that the audience understood. It drew them into it because it came out of their daily life. Have any of you worked in a vineyard? I haven't, right? Went to California. I visited vineyards. They were beautiful. The people who were hearing this, though, worked in vineyards. In the lowest element of any society. Okay? Now, I'm sorry, this is undoubtedly going to offend somebody, but it's true. From an economic standpoint, the lowest element in a society of a member that participates in society, back before the days of an entire entitlement class, there were day laborers. Can't you go under 59 in Hillcroft right now and there are men standing out there that when you drive by in a pickup truck, they look at you with anticipation in their eyes. Why? Because they're there to work. They're day laborers. If you don't pick them up, what happens? They don't get paid. If they don't get paid, what happens? They don't eat. They have people depending on them. That is the setting of this story that we're going to hear. There is a marketplace and people are waiting in great need. 
They didn't have steady income. They didn't have an estate. They didn't have servants of their own. They were the lowest element of society and they're waiting and they're hungry and they're hoping and if they don't receive, they don't eat. Can you think about that for a minute? We're so far removed from that, that's hard for us to even imagine. But that is the scenario. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. The Levitical law said when you hire somebody, you need to pay them that day for their work. Because the Levitical law cared about even the lowest elements of society. And they didn't want those who had money to extort those who didn't buy, saying, hey, come work for me, and then withholding their wages overnight so that they would go without food. Then the next day offering them maybe a little less because they were in greater need. And the next day a little less. It says also, don't take a man's cloak in pledge for his debt because then he won't have a way to keep warm. God cared about the little guy. What is the kingdom of heaven like? It's like a landowner who goes out to hire men. These people could all relate to this immediately. They have all been one or the other. Either the man who is hiring or the man being hired. Everybody in the audience would relate to that. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. Now, because of our decadent society, when you read that, standing in the marketplace doing nothing, you think, oh, they're lazy, right? You think these guys are on welfare. They're just laying around. There was no welfare. They were doing nothing because there was literally nothing that they could do to earn a living. This is why the Bible looked after widows and orphans. It's why Judaism esteemed most highly widows and orphans because they didn't want the widows to have to turn to prostitution and they didn't want the orphans to starve. If somebody didn't hire you, you didn't eat. Have I said that enough for it to start to get into us? So the third hour, they're standing around doing nothing. Not because they're lazy. They have no way to support themselves. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? This is a rhetorical question. He knows why. He wants them to think about why. The eleventh hour. How many hours are there in a day? (laughs) It's not more than twelve hours of daylight in a day. This is the very, very end. What does that mean? If you're the first guy hired, let's just suppose that all of the men in here are standing at 59 in Hillcroft, a big white dooley is coming by and you need to eat. And man, not only do you need to eat, but your baby needs to eat. When that truck comes by, Brad and Matthew jump in first, right? The biggest human emotion. You need to eat. Put yourselves in this boat for a moment. You happy for Brad and Matt? Probably not. You're disappointed for you. Not so much that you don't care about Brad and Matt. More that you're concerned for your own welfare, right? That's what the people are thinking. Now this landowner, he's going out every few hours and he's finding people to work. Why didn't he just hire them all at the first? Well, maybe the work was more than he thought. Maybe he thought he could get it done with some and he had to hire more and then he had to hire more and he had to hire more. There's any number of reasons that he might have gone out. The point is is that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner constantly looking for people. Now the ones that were hired in the first hour and then the ones that were hired in the third and the sixth and the ninth and the eleventh, each hour that goes by the people are in greater need and they are more and more hopeless. Put yourselves in their shoes. More and more hopeless. He went out again, 6th hour, verse 6. About the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? In other words, could you not find anybody who would show you mercy? You couldn't find anybody that cared enough about your family to put you to work. You couldn't find anybody that wanted to feed you. Nobody. Because no one has hired us, they answered. 
It's not that we're not willing to work. It's that nobody sees any value in us. He said to them, you also go work in my vineyards. When you think about the kingdom of God, you need to think about a landowner who wants to show mercy to everybody that he can find work for. The ones that nobody else... By the way, have you ever played football as a little kid or basketball or maybe you were in the brownies, whatever it is, and they choose teams? How does it feel to be the last one chosen? Come on, it makes you want to quit before you start, doesn't it? Isn't it a good feeling when the two teams start to line up and Brad and Matt are the team captains and the first word out of their mouth is, I want Adam. He says, no, you can't have Adam. I want Adam. And a fight breaks out over Adam, right? That's where we all want to be. We all want to be that guy that God is fighting to get on His team. But how does it feel when the draft has come and the first round win and the second round and the third round? Now you're standing around and you're looking and you're starting to realize... I must not be any good because all I see around me are the crippled and the lame. How do you feel? Who's the last guy to get hired in the day laborer situation? The one that looks like he has the least to offer. But the landowner is willing to hire even those. That's what the kingdom's like. I want to ask you, who will you exclude? Say, well, I won't exclude anybody. Eric, I hear your teaching. I'm going to put it into practice. I won't exclude anybody. Who did you pass by this week without giving the opportunity to show God's kindness to? Who did you get mad at? And your actions displayed something about God other than this rich landowner who wants to employ everybody, who wants to make sure everybody's fed, who wants to care for their needs. Quit caring so much about what people believe and what they deserve. Let's start thinking about what they need and what they've not seen. What do you know that God hasn't taught you? What do you have that God hasn't given you? Why do we think we're special because of what we've received? Because we are. But why did you receive it? That's the question. Because no one has hired them. He said to them, You also go work in my vineyard. Evening came. The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages beginning with the last ones hired, going to the first. Doesn't that just cut against every grain in you? Come on, those of you that are employed right now, first off, be thankful for your job. Quit whining about it. I want you to know something about that. Next to almost every Scripture that teaches your work is under the Lord, I have the word Eric Stevens written next to it because there is no bigger complainer or grumbler than me. Is the heart. I always saw secular work as a chain around my neck. Man, if I could just get free from this, then I could do God's work. Then I'd come across a scripture that said, you know, hey man, work as if it's under the Lord. And I'm like, mm-hmm. come on, Lord. You know, you know what I want to do is preach. You know, well, 13 years later, still got the same secular chain around my neck. Except that, that's how most people that I've run into have gotten saved. So is it a chain around my neck? Anybody in here ever pray for, for, for ministry? Right? Lord God, I want to, want to do something for You. I'm excited for You, Lord. I can't help but tell. You go do prison ministry. What if it's from the inside? Well, that, that Lord I'm not so excited about. That's Nick's ministry. Send Nick. I just don't feel led, you know? You notice all the places people feel called to missions? Not very many are crucifying Christians. They just don't feel led, you know. Why? Jesus would go where the greatest need is. I'm not picking on people in missions. At least they had the courage to go somewhere. What are you doing? Oh, well, we warm seats very well, Lord. We warm them good. Almost as good as the church down the road. I love y'all. Y'all are not seat warmers. 
But I want to change our attitude. I want to constantly be stirring something up. Don't be content with the status quo. The things I'm telling you in worship about pushing in further spiritually, about taking bigger steps, going further tomorrow than you did today. So you don't prophesy. Learn to prophesy. The Word says desire it. So you don't yet pray in other tongues. Learn to pray in other tongues. The Word teaches these things are for us. How long will you be content with what you already have? The Word teaches that God is a fountain and He's welling up inside of you and it will overflow. The problem is, is we put the cork in the bottle all too often. We decide this far and no further. I've gone enough. Am I saved? Am I saved? Will I stay saved? I mean, all we want to know is have I achieved? Have I made it? Man, you have never made it. You don't make it. You continually grow and progress until that day when you stand before Him. Say, so, well, Eric, how do I feel assured? His Spirit shows you that you should be assured. Quit looking for a place to coast and to rest. Quit looking for a, well, I've done all that's been required. You haven't done all that's been required because you woke up today with a new task. Seek it out. Find it. Where's your fresh bread? Where's your daily allotment? How long will we sit and grow mold? We can't. There are enough churches doing that. They're exceedingly good at it. The day of the mega ministry, carefully crafted media, perfectly styled hair. Everybody got just the right makeup. Everybody's clothes are perfectly coordinated. Never would there be worship with one note out of tune. It brings in an enormous crowd. But if they're not doing something with what they're learning, then it's useless. It's mere entertainment. The little bitty tiny church. Oh, it may feel good. You're growing close relationships. Our word of the day is intimacy, right? If you're not doing something with it, it's useless. You're supposed to be tasting something here that you can't help but spread everywhere else. I'm not going to spend my time pointing at what other churches do wrong. Let's look in our own mirror. I want to get this right. I don't want to pass by people... I would no more pass by a woman with kids on the side of the road in a broken down car without stopping than a man on the moon. It's in me. But why will I pass, down, pass by the broken down person in life? The one who nothing's gone right for. Who has buck teeth and stinks a little bit and maybe talks too much and it's annoying. Why do I pass him by? Who has the greater need? The chick who just needs her tire changed or the guy that needs a renewal in his life? Let's open our eyes. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner, and he's looking for somebody to bless. The workers hired about the eleventh hour came and received a denarius. You know why they received a denarius? Let's let's not get into the comparative thing yet. Why do they receive a denarius? Huh? For their work. How much work did they do if they were hired in the eleventh hour? Would you pay for a whole day's wages for one hour's work? Probably not, would you? I come to work for you, you say, Eric, I'm going to pay you minimum wage. And for argument's sake, because math's easy, let's say the minimum wage is $10. Might be soon with our new change in Congress. Ten bucks. So if I work an eight-hour day, not a 12, I'm supposed to get 80 bucks at the end of the day. Why does this guy pay... For $10 work, $80. Why? Why were those guys standing out there? Why were they dangerous? Because they needed to eat. They needed wages. Denarius was a day's wages. It's what it took for a working man to supply the minimal amount of food for his family for a single day. He gave it to them because it's what they needed. And he cared more about what they needed than what they deserved. What does that tell us, saints? The prodigal father, wronged in every way by both sons. But he gave them what they needed, not what they deserved. What are these messages communicating to you? But when that servant went... Oh, sorry. The workers, verse 9, who were hired about... The eleventh hour came and received the denarius. So when those came who were hired the first hour, they expected to receive more. Why? Because they saw what those guys got and thought, well, surely I've done more. 
You've been in church all your life. You came out of the uterus with a Bible in your hand. You were so holy that the aura around you blinded the doctors. Somebody else has just turned their life around. Maybe they've been in and out of church. Maybe they've needed a lot more mercy than you have in your life. But what do you both need? You both need what it takes to sustain you that day. It doesn't matter whether you deserve it or not. Both of you, the older and the younger from last week, both of you need mercy. But each one of them also received grace. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour. What difference does it make? Why was the older brother in the story angry? Why are these people angry at God's compassion and His mercy? They're not receiving less. They're not being cared for less. It's a wage dispute. It's a heart problem. When we look around us, blessed on every side, you got food to eat. you got friends who love you. Most of you have got places to go and things to do and people to see. When we pass by... People made in the divine image of God without caring that they're blessed in the same way. We are not like God. There needs to develop in us not an evangelistic attitude that says, I just need to see people saved. I need tens of thousands of people say, I'm going to go give tracts. I'm going to give more tracts than anybody. That's not what we need. We need an evangelistic attitude that says, I've been so blessed for the reason that I want to see other people blessed. I want to see this grow. I want to see it spread in this way. I want others to know the goodness of God that their life would get what it needs. Churches that count their baptisms, that give award certificates and those things, the focus gets wrong. It starts out of a good desire, but somehow gets twisted. Is it really about how many people who got wet? No! It's about making sure everybody gets fed the spiritual food that they need because we all need it. Well, Mandy has worked so hard and studied so diligently. Surely she should get more than Judah. They both have the same need. That's the kind of God we serve. We better learn to imitate Him. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of work in the heat of the day. The message in the prodigal and this message is the same. This son of yours who went off and spent your wealth on harlots. This son of yours, and now you've done this for him. The problem is always that those who have been employed in God for a while, don't think it's fair that the new arrivals are treated as equals. Thanks, it's so wrong. It's so easy, too, to think about this in church as new converts. What about the guy sitting on your left and right at work? The one who's heard enough churchianity to think that he's okay. And you hear this bald, fat preacher hammering you every week that it is not okay to be like you are. That's a blessing. You're being spurred to change. What about him? What if all he hears is that he's a wonderful person and that as long as he tithes, it's all good? What if for him, the fishers of men have been fishers for profit? You're going to pass him by? Say, well, it's not like he's a drunk or a drug addict on the side of the road, Eric. I mean, he's got a Bible. What revelation do you have that God didn't give you? Didn't somebody break ground in your life? When are we going to decide to put the kingdom to work in us? Don't sit and soak. Don't sit and soak. You'll get stagnant. You'll stink. You'll think you're all right, and inwardly you will stink. The best streams in the world are those with good, running, moving water. It'll stay clear, powerful. Your eyes will be on what God does through you instead of on you. The problem with the American church is it is fat and decadent. It's lazy. All the best preachers, all the best stories, all the best books, 
prayer of this, left behind, all of those things. Oh, it all makes us feel good, but what are you doing with any of it? But he answered one he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I give you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? We serve a God who is generous. What was the story of the so-called prodigal about? It wasn't about a prodigal at all. It was about a gracious, merciful, generous father. What is this story about? Is it about workers in a vineyard? No, it's about their generous employer. Our attitudes are always wrong. It's always on us. It's always on us. This story is about God and it is teaching us how to be like God. And each one of these people were in a situation where they go, golly, if I was hired in the 11th hour, I guess it's better than nothing. You know, it's one-tenth of what I needed. And then they hear they got paid the same wage. They felt like they had literally been saved. Saved from death. Come on, if you've got a phone call tomorrow from Visa, MasterCard, Citibank, whoever it is that said your debt was just erased, how would you feel? That's this story. This story is there were somebody who owed Visa $10, somebody who owed 10000 and some that owed a million. And it was all wiped out. And yet, some of us would go, well, I only had to have $10 wiped out. That's not fair. I should have run that credit card up. I should have run it all up before it got wiped out. What kind of heart is that? Come on, church. It's time to imitate God. He's like a generous landowner. He's an awesome guy. He cares. Now, He's treated you specially, wouldn't you say? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4. Has He treated you specially? In here, you know what it is like to have received a day's wages for 15 minutes. You've committed time theft in the kingdom. You know why you've committed time theft in the kingdom? When He hired you, when He made you His, you were supposed to work. How often have you sat on your... But... Instead of done the work of the kingdom. How often have you not had the attitude that said, I will press on today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. How often have you not had the attitude that said, there are only so many hours of daylight I can work. Night is coming when no man can work. How often have you gone without sleep and hungry and in danger of beatings for the Gospel? Think about it. Are these just stories we read? Or is this something that is supposed to move us? Something that we're supposed to imitate. When you say you are Christ-like, what a bold statement. I am a Christian. Well, what does that mean? Where is our tenacity to do what is right at all costs? Where is our tenacity to drag others with us if that's what it takes? To stand up against the entire religious world even if it costs you your life because what you're doing is right and it is noble. Saints, we have to cultivate this. It has to grow. The church sits and soaks until it stinks. We can't do it. I can't do it. 1 Corinthians 4 teaches us something. Y'all there? One of you's there. Where are the rest of you? There's nothing left in me, saints. There is no other way to tell you. There's nothing else that I can do. I mean, I can't stand on this pulpit and juggle to get your attention. Don't fall asleep in church. I don't mean that literally. I'm telling you, I'm not worried about where your eyes are. Don't let this stuff just skim over. You become more accountable to the Lord of the harvest every message. You become more accountable with every new revelation that you get. And I'm going to give you another couple in this message. I'm going to load you up with so much that you can't help but go teach people. You can't help but share it. Or else, bear the consequences for having sucked up, sucked up so much of the goodness of God and done nothing with it. God did not call an introvert. You said, well, it's just the way I am. Change! Change and do it now. We serve a God who is centrifugal. He is spinning outward. His goodness is going outward at all costs at the cost of men's lives. Quit thinking about yourself and what people will think about you. 
And if I say this, then what? If I do this, then what? Quit counting the cost that happened the day you got saved. We serve a God who expects that the deposit He's entrusted with us will grow. Now you've read that and you've thought, yeah, well that's grow in me. Get over yourself. It means grow to other people. The in you is just so that it can spill over. How big does one grape need to get? We need the bush to get big. We need there to be lots of grapes. We don't need one. What would you think if you went to an apple tree and it had one 250-pound apple? You'd think, what a waste! How much do we have to suck up before we will go and give it to somebody else? When will your syringe be full? When will the little hogs at the trough have eaten enough to go do something? We're always eating, always preparing. When is it time to perform? You remember I told you about the Air Force pilots? Well, it's wartime. It is time to go out and take it to the enemy. It is time to love the ones nobody else will love. It was put on deposit with you for a reason. He chose you. It was special. His special revelation from heaven came to you. When I teach about this, there's a a chance that people will think that we're somehow eclectic and esoteric. That somehow or another, we're just a special little cultish group of people who believe they've heard something from God that nobody's... It's just the opposite. What we have received, I want you to go give to everybody. Everywhere. He didn't give it to us because we're special. He gave it to us because it's special and He thought you would do something with it. So why on earth would we put messages online? Why on earth do we mail CDs to people without return envelopes with tithe requests? Because I don't think God gave it to us for us. It's almost arrogant to have a church this size with a focus that is so large, isn't it? It's almost like we just don't understand how small and insignificant we are. No, I understand it perfectly. But the message He's given me is not small. It's not insignificant. And hear this, saints. It was not for me. He gave it to me for a reason. To get it to somebody else. Abraham, an awesome man of God, right? Oh, we all love Father Abraham. The Muslims love him. I shudder to even say that. The Jews love Him, praise God. And the Christians love Him. Everybody loves Father Abraham. It wasn't about Abraham. Genesis 18 says God chose Him because He would teach His children. It was about everybody who came into contact with Abraham's life. If it had just been about Abraham and him being God's friend, God could have said, come on, Abe, we're going. Snatched him right up. He'd have been right there. He'd have been right there with God. It wasn't about Abraham. It was about everybody that God would bless through Abraham. Do we need to go back and read Genesis 12? Do y'all not? I mean, how many times have I read it? I'm blessing you. And all nations will be blessed through you. Why? Why does one group of people get God's special revelation? Why did God invest three and a half years in Peter and didn't stop there? Because He cared about Cornelius. Who in your life... Think about that. You're at Burger King after church. Because you're hungry, right? At least Peter was on the roof praying when he was hungry. You're hungry. Are you there just to eat? I mean, you just ate spiritually. Now you're at Burger King. Are you there just because you love their double whoppers? And God knows I do. Or is it possible that there's a Cornelius out there somewhere that has some understanding of God that makes him drawn, but he just doesn't know what you know when he needs the completed message. He needs help. Which Apollos have you run into lately? Somebody who understood the Word of God adequately, but he needed what you had so that it would be more adequate. You are special because you received a special revelation, but it's not for you. You point at those bad, nasty Jews who were so steeped in legalism. The people of special revelation. So many made the same mistake you make every week. They thought it was for them. 
It was, but only so that they could be a priesthood to the nations because God had always cared about the nations. So easy to see their flaws. So hard to see our own. I want to do this right. Can you tell? Corinthians 4. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. What did he say? As apostles. As a pastors with a capital P for power. They ought to regard us as champions. They ought to regard us as heroes. Mighty men. They ought to regard us as servants, but who were entrusted with something. It wasn't about Him. He was just a servant. We only think He's great because He finished right. It was never about Paul. The day Paul got saved, what was he told? I'm going to show you what you must suffer. You're going to take this to who? Before my people and the Gentiles. Why did God save Paul? Why did God give Paul such an exceedingly great revelation? Because it wasn't for Paul. It was for everybody he would take it to. Close your eyes for a minute. Don't not close your eyes. I'll throw something at you. Everybody's eyes closed? You've just walked out of my house. Beautiful, glorious day. Cool breeze blowing on your face. Sun shining. You feel it on the sides of your cheek. Oh, it's nice. I'm going to go to the park. I'm going to do something fun today. What's that? Something's moving across the street. Looks like paper in the wind. Somebody, oh, it's trash. Somebody, no, it's not trash. It's green. Oh my goodness, what is, I'm gonna, you put your left foot on it. You reach down to get it with your hand, it's a hundred dollar bill. Open your eyes. Open your eyes, look at me. Who's that for? What was your first thought? Why did you receive that hundred dollars? Oh, thank you Lord, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. I can't wait to go to the buffet, the casino, wherever you go. Why did you receive it? Was there a thought in there anywhere that said... God gave me this because somebody else needs it. Was there a thought anywhere that said, wow, I now have $100 to invest in someone else's life? I'm not talking about money. I don't care what you do with your money. If I teach you what to do with the things of God, you'll learn what to do with your money. You're not receiving these things for you. You know how you know when that was for you? When you'd been on your face crying and praying because you didn't have the $100 that you needed. But when you've just stumbled upon something that is awesome, our thoughts need to turn towards, who is this for? Oh, but that requires work. I mean, that's such a burden. How can I walk around all the time with everybody else on my mind? It's so hard not to think about me. We've got a me-centered, sit-and-soak life. How does my job make me feel? How does hanging out with Pastor Herrick make me feel? Me, 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 me. It's not about you. God didn't give you anything except for somebody else's benefit. Now think about how much has He already invested in you. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for what you have. Lord, I'm going to give you more even today. But why? We have to be about the work of the kingdom. This is not... Why? So we can build a church, a big church, so that we can have great and exalted pastors so Piro can put out ten CDs and go get a new hair implants and crunk in his mouth and drive a Mercedes so that I can go get lipoed, get just the right contouring of my face and sell books? Come on, let's not be ridiculous. Why would we even care about building a church if it's not because you're wanting to see lives change and people grow for the glory of God? Then all you have is a business plan. All you have is a marketing scheme. I don't want it. Does God use it? Sure, He's using it all around us. He's using it all around us. There's no question in my mind that if we were meeting in a traditional style building right now, there would be more people here. But why? And what for? I have got to raise up around me some people 
that will take this and go, God gave me this awesome thing in the Word and it's for somebody I know it. I'm in Walmart now. Who could it be? I'm at the campus now. Who could it be for? Where we have an expectant attitude. When I say that word expectant, all you've ever heard me say is expectant receive from God. Now it's time to put the rest of the message together. Expecting to receive from God so that you can be expectant about giving it to somebody. Wow, I just heard this thing in church. I couldn't believe it. We've all read this parable wrong. If you just get in the Jewish culture, you find out how good God is. It moves me. It's awesome. Who's it for? i got to tell somebody. I can't help it. This lady just thinks she came to buy a laptop from me. My bank's forbidden me to talk about Jesus. But they can't help it. He's written on my life. Oh, I may not be able to say His name without getting fired, but they can see His fire in my eyes. Saints, that's what He's called. Do you come in today to go through one more church service? Do you wake up this morning and say, i got to go to church? Come on, man. It's time. It's time. How much have you received? Patricia, think about what God's invested in your life. Think about that for a moment. And it's so good. Y'all are serving so many people. You're doing so good already. You're playing high school football and doing it well, but God's called us beyond the NFL. It's time to shine, man. It is time to shine. Not for you. For Jesus. Ephesians 2. I can't believe this. I'm on. We haven't even got to any of the scripture I wanted to share. Ephesians 2. This gets so sing song, so nice, so churchy. You can say it in your King James and recite it just like when you were a little kid. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. That didn't even strike us anymore, does it? Didn't even make a dent anymore. Because it's just church words to us. But if you'd been standing on a corner starving, hoping that somebody would take a chance and just put you to work even for a little while, it would mean something. Think, think about where you were. Well, I've never really been that bad off. Well... Good to have been employed. Now examine your heart. Do you understand what the Father... How Is He just an employer to you? Is He just Santa Claus that brings you gifts at the right time? Are you just waiting to receive an inheritance? Why not kill Him now and get it now? We need to understand how gracious, how awesome, how powerful He is to us so that we have something to share with somebody else. It is for, by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. What do you have that was not given to you? What do you have? Maybe you're smarter than somebody. How'd you get that? All of you are better looking than me. How'd you get that? Think about it. Everything that you have is for the benefit of someone else if you're in the kingdom. What part of Jesus' life did He hold back for Himself? What part? What part of Paul's life did he hold back for himself? What part? Not by works so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship. What are you? Created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works. How's that for sitting on your salvation? Why has God done for you what He's done? Because He wants something out of you. He needs your good work. In fact, the Word says He prepared them in advance for you to do. He called you with a task in mind. Oh, that's fine. As long as it's grandiose in the future and pleasing in every way to me. What if it's putting one foot in front of you today? Genesis 41 We're not going to go there. I I won't get to the next thing I want to do. In Genesis 41, there's this real obscure guy in the Bible named Joseph. He was favored by his father, wasn't he? 
coat of many colors also. Joseph displays more wisdom than any other man living on the planet at the time when Pharaoh gives him a dream. First thing that Pharaoh says is, hey, uh, can you interpret this dream? He said, no, no way, not me, can't do it, but God can. Joseph understood right away that it was only God that could work through him. Then this dream, right? Fat cows, skinny cows, fat grain, skinny grain. Can you imagine seeing a cow eat another cow? Hmm. Joseph understands from God. It's given to him. Man, there's going to be seven fat years followed by seven skinny years. Famine. And the famine's going to be so bad that we won't even remember the good years. What did he do? He created Joseph's storehouse. Saints, there is a famine. For some, it's come in their lives today. Not a famine of food or water. It's a spiritual famine. Amos 9 talks about it. And you have been storing up and storing up and storing up. But why? We've got to decide to go out and meet the famine in people's lives. We have got to. That's what we were called for. And it's not just enough to store it up. It is not just enough to store the grain. It's not just enough to hear the teaching and accept it. Listen to this quote. It doesn't matter who it's from. If I tell you who it's from, then you find something about him you don't like, and then this doesn't make sense. A common peril in the Christian walk is to equate a mental understanding of truth with living it out in real life. Do you all understand that, or I read it too fast? A common peril in the Christian walk is to equate a mental understanding of truth with living it out. Oh, well, I understand it. That's not the question. There exists a subtle danger of having a truth lie sterile in your intellect, mentally grasped, but not spiritually applied. Come on, man, I have never read anything that was so true as that. I hear it, I know it's true. Uh-huh, that's right. You know that's right, Pastor. Uh-huh, that's right. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, but are you doing it? What we must guard against is mere mental assent to the church as an issue. We live in a day of issues. Paul referred to issue followers as those with tingling ears. He did not treat them gently. This church, this bride for whom Christ as a heavenly suitor bore the cross is no mere issue. Around her completion revolves issues of life, death, reward, shame in the kingdom. Saints, it's not enough to acknowledge the message is true. Having a right perception of divine things does not ensure that we are holding them in our hands. Do you understand that? Understanding salvation in and out, understanding spiritual things in and out does not ensure that you have them. Knowing how to plant a seed doesn't make you a gardener. You want me to read the rest of this? After having made a fresh appraisal of the biblical understanding of the church, you are no better off if you fail to flesh out the new light you have discovered. What you have read thus far utterly dismantled your present understanding of the church. Now let me press this terse query. What he's saying right now, because he said it strangely, is, listen, let's assume that you've read something that has totally changed the way that you think about everything. Now what are you going to do with it? That's what he's saying. Some have championed the idea of renewing the institutional church from the inside out. But those who have sought to revamp the established church have met serious resistance and frustration. No kidding. To be perfectly candid and left the extra-biblical clergy sectarian system is dismantled in a particular church. Efforts to reach God's highest desire will be handcuffed. The following disheartening results will occur. I read this and I knew he had walked some of the same miles I have. The pastor will feel threatened. The staff will resist, resist the disruption of the status quo. The congregation will be thrown into a panic. 
individual believers will be utterly confused and the church will kill the revelation. Why have you received the revelation that you have? We can talk about why this doesn't work well all day long. It's for someone else. But it's hard. Jesus called you to the supernatural. It's not enough that you've received this. You have to do something with it. Turn with me to Matthew. You go ahead and turn to Luke 5. I'm going to tell you about this. Matthew 12, 33-35 tells you the kingdom of God is like a woman who took yeast, worked it into dough, and it worked through the whole batch. That's a positive use of yeast, right? It's a catalyst for change. It's the kingdom of God starts small and grows big. God uses the same yeast, a negative example, in Luke 6, 45-46. He said, man, you need to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees. By this he meant their teaching, and he goes on to tell them that. How can yeast be both good and bad? It's not about the yeast. It's about change. Yeast represents change. Leaven represents change. Are you all with me so far? Go to Luke 5. Is that where you are? I quoted those scriptures wrong a while ago. The positive use of yeast is Matthew twelve thirty three. The negative use of the yeast is Luke six forty five. The previous two scriptures I quoted were about good men bringing up good things out of their heart. You all in Luke five now? Forgive me for misquoting that. Nothing I want to get right in my life more than the word. Luke five, starting in verse thirty three. I'm going to try to do this quickly but not so quickly that you don't get it. I promised to give you more fresh revelation, didn't I? Are you looking at the parable of the day laborers maybe just a tad different than you used to? The parable of the man with the two sons last week, that was fresh bread, wasn't it? Okay, here's one more. They said to him, this is Luke 5:33. John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and what? Oh, eating and drinking. I bet they just meant water. We'll see. I bet they just meant water. They must have. You know why they must have? Because I grew up in the South. We went through Prohibition. Surely this word written 2,000 years ago took into consideration the cultural experiences that I have, right? Jesus answered. What's this question about, by the way? Fasting. Jesus, you're having a good time and we're denying ourselves. You're having a good time all the time and we're denying ourselves. We're so holy and you're having too much fun. Why is that? Oh, no, we could never relate to that. What do you mean you went out and watched a movie and had food and had a good time? What do you mean you don't wear a necktie and suffer and hard pews like the rest of us. What do you mean your worship's free and y'all enjoy it and you have fun? Ah, that church must water down the Word. Must be tolerant of sin. That's got to be it. Because we all know church is supposed to utterly suck. And if it's not painful, it's not holy. Jesus answered, Can you make the guest of a bridegroom fast while he is with them? In Jewish experience, the highest social honor that you can be at is a wedding. It's the most joyous thing there is. He's picked the pinnacle right here. He said, would you mourn while you're at a wedding? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And in those days they'll fast. He said, man, what you want from us right now is aestheticism. What you want from us right now is to smear coal on our face, to look righteous, to have to hurt for it some. And what you don't understand is everything's joyful right now. I give them everything they need. They're in my presence all of the time. It's awesome and you're missing it. You want to know why we don't fast? Because the time is not right to fast. There'll come a time when it's right to fast. It's okay to fast. But you're missing something. Now when you read that, my thoughts have always tended towards those bad legalistic Jews. Right? Man, all they care about is fasting instead of being with Jesus. Did you know that Judaism does not teach daily fasting? You'd all starve to death. Did you know that Judaism does not teach weekly fasting? 
that surprise you? Judaism does not teach monthly fasting. Not one fast in every month of the year. Judaism does not teach that you need ten fasts in a year, not eight fasts in a year, not five fasts in a year. You know how many fasts Judaism required? One, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. On the day that I'm going to make atonement for every sin in Israel, I want you to not eat and think about me. It's the only one. So why are these guys fasting? Well, why do you fast? Let's talk about that. Why does the church fast today? To get closer to God, right? Is their heart wrong? When the Jews came out of the Babylonian captivity, they knew that they had messed up. How did they know they had messed up? Isn't that obvious, right? So under Ezra and Nehemiah, they began structuring a newer Judaism. Did you hear that? Newer Judaism. Judaism post-Babylon is different than Judaism pre-Babylon. And in their Jewish liturgy, they started adding more fasting and an emphasis on more outward things like that. Now, John the Baptist comes, and he was a Nazarite. John the Baptist never drank wine. You hear me? Never. And that was unusual because most Jews did. John the Baptist was cleansing people in a river, and that was unusual because Jews already considered themselves cleansed. Now the disciples of John the Baptist, along with Pharisees, have come and said, hey, why aren't you guys fasting as much as we are? Their desire was to work up something to get closer to God. It was not bad. The new thing was their new Jewish liturgy. You got me? More fasting. Judaism of old never required it. I want you to unlearn something here and think about this. hope I hadn't filled you too full so that you don't get this because this is good. He told them this parable. Every commentator that you will read, everyone divorces what Jesus says here from the question of fasting. In context, you absolutely can't do it. But you know why they do it? They don't like what He says. Watch this. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have a torn new garment and the patch from the new one will not match the old. In this scenario, what is new? This new emphasis on fasting. In ancient Judaism, this emphasis was not there. And Jesus is saying, hey man, you're not, it, this is not going to work. Your new fasting schema grafted onto the pure, older Judaism doesn't work. And no one pours new wine into an old wineskin. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. You can't pour this new emphasis on fasting, this new schemata on holiness, into the old system. It won't hold it. It won't work. The result will be legalism. The result will be bad. Have you ever heard that before? I promise you haven't. Now watch. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. We've always heard Jesus teaching about new wine. We've always heard this said that the new wine and the wineskins is the emphasis. It's an afterthought. Watch this. I'll show you why. Look at verse 39. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for he says... The old is better. You to hear me. There is a problem. The problem in Judaism of this day is that they are adding outward things to make them draw closer to God. And Jesus said that's new and it's not going to work. It hasn't been matured. It hasn't been through its change yet. And as it does, it'll tear away from the older Judaism. That's the shrunk and unshrunk cloth. He says, and when you try to pour this into a mature wineskin... It'll crack. It's not going to hold it. He's not taking away the idea, though, of change. He's already taught the kingdom is like leaven. It'll work through the whole batch. But what he says is you need both new teaching and new vessels. You can't take this new teaching and throw it in the old vessels. You have to take both new teaching and new vessels so they can grow and expand 
together. New wine is for a new wineskin. Now, we're pretty clear there. Most people have got that, right? If you put new wine in new wineskins and they both mature and change, what happens? What do you have? Old wine and old wineskins. Don't you? The old is better. Nobody after tasting the old will want the new anymore. What he's trying to say is, guys, you have the right desire. You're going about it the wrong way. What we need is to change both the way you're going about it and the, way, the actual implementation so that we end up with old wine and mature skins. There's nothing wrong with an old wine skin. You've always heard throw out the old wine skins. It's just for old wine. We need to do two things in our lives. It's not enough that you're storing up this grain. It's not enough that I'm telling you to pour it out. The Bible teaches us that this is supposed to deposit in us. It's supposed to ferment and grow. And we are supposed to expand and change with it so that it will be useful. It will be matured. In fact, the rabbis taught that the Torah was just like wine. I'm going to read you this. This is out of the Talmud, and then I'm going to have to close. One does not feel that... This is out of, do you all know what the Talmud is? It's a commentary within Judaism on the law. One does not feel the taste of wine at the beginning, but the longer it grows old in the pitcher, the better it becomes. Sounds like they're not drinking grape juice, doesn't it? When you go into a restaurant, the most expensive wine, it's what was made last month, right? No. The older, the more expensive, right? Okay, that's what he's saying. Thus also the words of the Torah. The longer they grow old in the body, the better they become. Jesus is teaching something that was already within Judaism. You need to be able to take what is new, fresh revelation to you, sweet at first, just like new wine, and let it grow and expand and work through you so that what you're presenting to people is aged and matured, well thought out. Does that make sense? Have you ever heard that new wine was not fermented and old wine was? wouldn't be wine if that was the case. You remember they accused Peter of being drunk on the day of Pentecost? The word there? Sweet wine. New wine. Why would they accuse him of being drunk? If... I'm not teaching on alcohol. What I'm trying to tell you is they asked Jesus a question about fasting. And why he was eating and drinking. And what he begins to tell them is, you have some right ideas, but you're not meshing them right. He said both things are needed. What we need is a new vessel and a fresh revelation. They need to grow together and the result will be something that's mature. And when you get what is mature, nobody will ever want what is immature again. Is that new to y'all? I'd hope that it would be. We're going to close with this. What you have was not for you. Just like what Abraham had was not for him and what Paul had was not for him and what Peter had was not for him. But what is required... It's not just that you assent to it intellectually, but that you begin to meditate on it, mull it over, allow it to ferment within you, so that when you give it to other people, what they're tasting of God is a mature, full-bodied gospel, not just rote memorization, not just hollow philosophy, but something that you've experienced that has permeated you, that has changed you, that they will want again and again and again. Does that make sense? That's also why I want you to go over these words more and more and more. We're going to close in prayer. Stand up and let's pray. And if there's questions, I'll take them.